The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. Okay. So, <clears throat> welcome to the fourth lecture. This is a, this will be the second one on the subject of DNA. The major difference between this one, this lecture and uh, and the last one, is that last one, so-called DNA one, we focused in on uh, uh, types of mutants. Uh, they're uh, really closely related DNA sequences, and this one we'll talk about the most distant related biopolymer sequences. So we have uh, we went through the way you can generate closely related sequences and the way that the populations, which are made up of closely related sequences, uh, obtain those, those uh, allele frequencies through mutation, drift, and selection. And I argued that uh, deep down uh, at the most precise level, you've got a binomial uh, uh, distribution behind each of the processes of mutation, drift, and selection. Then we went on to a uh, at least under a certain set of assumptions. And then we went on to another very valuable statistic, which is the chi-square, which you can use in a number of different scenarios, but in particular with association studies, where we did a, a simple case of a uh, two-allele system with two outcomes, HIV resistance and sensitivity. And then this association l led to a broader discussion of... Uh, alleles and haplotypes and genotypes in general and how one can obtain those and in the process of doing so expose oneself to random systematic errors, a theme that we will return to from time to time. So today we'll talk not about very closely related sequences but very distant related sequences and what are the algorithms that are available for finding those. These distant related sequences uh, give a very different uh, set of avenues. Here we're trying to look for hints for hypotheses in, say, new genome sequences as to what new genes might do. Uh, so we'll begin uh, by comparing different types of algorithms that will allow us to do alignments. Uh, in particular, we'll stress the hero of today's show is uh, dynamic programming. It comes up again and again throughout the course, not merely in pairwise sequence alignment, but multi-sequence alignment. And uh, we'll then go on to uh, how the space in your computer, the memory uh, de dedicated to a process and the time uh, determine trade-offs. And in some cases, you will have to even sacrifice accuracy or completeness. And this this also leads to the, the uh, issue of finding genes, a particular type of uh, distance sequence comparison the one's interested in is finding motifs that are involved in finding genes. And finally, we'll end on hidden Markov model, the simplest one that I could think of that would really illustrate the, the idea of Markov models, probabilistic models, and the hiddenness. Uh, and this, so this is illustrated with a single dinucleotide with two states. Okay, so this puts in context in uh, the first couple of lectures, we talked about the tree of life and how right at the core, we had uh, the common and most simple forms which share the simple genetic code. 
And it, that was at the be- and then last time we talked about the very tip of one branch of, of one of these trees, basically the human branch of the animal uh, branch. And what has happened even at the tip of that, the last 5,000 generations since uh, uh, the fairly significant bottlenecks that resulted, uh, that, have, that predated the, the population explosion. And so in, in this time we're going to talk about the whole tree and how these very deep branches can be uh, obtained in comparing biopolymer sequences. This one is, some of the earliest trees of life were based on the ribosomal RNA sequence because that's something that's fairly easy to trace back to common ancestors, but you also want to be able to do this with a variety of proteins, some of which go uh, only a short distance traceably in sequence and some of them go all the way back. What can we do with dynamic programming? I uh, alluded to multiple uses throughout the course. Here, here's some examples. We already mentioned shotgun sequence assembly. This is relatively easy because the sequences are fairly closely related to one another. Uh, multiple alignments include sequence assembly where you have multiple similar sequences. But as you get to more and more distant sequences, you can glean more and more uh, about structural and functional conclusions about uh, proteins and nucleic acids when you have a very large number in the hundreds. And we'll see the challenges that come uh, there. Uh, repeats are a, a, a particular, you can have repeats within a genome or we can have uh, alignments between different species. Now birdsong seems a little out of place here, but historically it's one of the, the first applications of dynamic programming where you in a sense have a continuous uh, time axis uh, and, and you sample that at discrete points often uh, in order to sample the um, intensity of the audio uh, 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 recording. And this uh, will have an, uh, a, a, direct, a more direct analog than sequence alignments, which we'll do today. Later when we're doing uh, the RNA analyses, gene expression will show a a direct uh, time warping algorithm which is very similar uh, in outline to the bird song. And then finally, hidden Markov models, which would be the last thing today, use dynamic programming as part of the process by which uh, the uh, decisions are made about the, the model that's uh, represented in the hidden Markov model. And these hidden Markov models in turn give us uh, allow us to do RNA gene searches, structure prediction, distant protein homologies, speech recognition, and so on. Okay, so let's get, there are three types of alignments and scores that we'll discuss on the slide, number five. Uh, there's the main dichotomy is between global and local. Originally in sequence alignment in the 70s, Needleman and Wunsch uh, had a global algorithm, which has been modified Smith and Waterman's local algorithm about a decade later. And the, ma- the major difference here is that in a global algorithm, you'd, you'd like to, uh, you have reason to believe that the sequences align end to end. And you really just want to ask how many mismatches and insertions and deletions are there uh, in the middle of the sequence. So, for example, you might have two proteins that really have the same start and stop site, or you might have an entire chromosome, and you're asking questions about haplotype as we were in the last class, which would be what mutations are in cis on one chromosome uh, relative to another. Another example is a, a, 
you might be scanning a chromosome for a motif that occurs again and again, like an alu repeat or a transcription factor binding motif. And this might be in the middle of one sequence, at the end of another, or in the middle of both. Here it's at the end of one and in the middle of another. And it's, sh and it's short and local, so you don't want to constrain the sequence that ends to a line, and you don't want to penalize if there's some deviation from alignment of the ends. Taking this one step further, uh, so that it's not internal to either one, uh, it's in an ideal uh, assembly, shotgun assembly of sequence, as we talked about last time, you would expect as one fragment, one clone fragment ends, hopefully you have a little bit of overlap at the beginning of the next one and you'll be able to kind of uh, jump along these stepping stones to get to the end of the sequence because you can't, you can't sequence the whole thing. And, but this ideal suffix, where the suffix of one overlaps or <coughs> the, the, the uh, suffix of reverse complement of another, uh, you can, this sort of uh, alignment can be imperfect because of errors at the ends of these sequences. So generally speaking, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be talking about global versus local. And these specific sequences we'll come back to uh, several slides from now. Now you want to have a scoring algorithm. We'll use this very simple scoring, scoring uh, metric uh, off and on uh, during this talk. And here we're just giving plus one for every perfect match indicated by a colon where an A matches an A and a minus one for every mismatch indicated by an X where a C does not match an A, for example. So we have five perfect matches and five mismatches in this case and so that's a total of uh, five plus minus three is two. In the local case, we're not, going, we're not going to require the ends to align, and so we can slip this a little bit so that now there's four perfect matches and we're not penalizing the terminal mismatches, and so you have a total of four, which if these were directly comparable scores would be a superior score. And you can see the suffix is uh, here you're enforcing that it be at the ends and it's a score of three. Okay. So now we're going to compare different ways of, uh, of searching through sequences. Now that one was, was, was a, uh, a, an exact uh, match with, with mismatches, and by, where the mismatches are penalized. And so an exact search, a truly exact search, is, is fairly rare, uh, maybe a restriction site, something like that. You can expand this to a regular expression where the insertions can't, uh, are restricted. They, in this case, um, an insertion can be indicated by any base, A, C, G, or T, can occur. Uh, and then the number that you will tolerate is indicated by a numeric range, 0 to 9 in this case. And so the particular example given, this is not, this equal sign just means that this is an example. So C, G are strict at the ends, and then it happened to have two A's there, which an A is an example of a, a nucleotide that satisfies the abbreviation N. N is all possible. But you could, you could similarly have the 0 to 9 bracket could refer to a sh short sequence like uh, AG sequence and so on. So you could get a, 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 a known number of repeats. And that could represent the empirical observation that you have 0 to 9 AG repeats. Okay. Uh, now, in the previous example, we just penalized whenever it was a mismatch by a fixed amount. But you could have a substitution matrix, which would actually uh, codify your observations. When you look through natural sequences and you line them up, how often do you get uh, 
and an A substituting for a G. And so the penalty wouldn't be a strict minus one. It would be something you'd look up in a table, uh, uh, and there would be, in that table, the diagonal would be the matches, and the off-diagonals would be specific mismatches. And we'll, and we'll show how, one of such a, how we um, get such a matrix and use it. Now, then you can have a profile matrix, or a, a, this P, PSI means position sensitive. And the position sensitive means you have a different lookup table for every position in your biopolymer. And that makes sense because not all positions have the same uh, set of, of equally, uh, or have the same sort of substitutions that are allowed. So in parentheses along here, I've, these, these uh, are actual names of programs uh, uh, that, have been, that are available uh, either in packages, commercial packages or for free. Um, BLAST is uh, basic local alignment uh, sequence. And the N refers to uh, nucleotide. And here, Cyblast, again, position sensitive. These are, these are some of the ones you'll run into most frequently. Um, the original versions of BLAST were, were, basic, were basically aimed at ex having the largest uh, block of contiguous sequence without gaps. And there were... Uh, so-called Carlin statistics that would tell you that that's the largest uh, sequence that, that will uh, give you the best probability. But then it's, it was widely recognized that when people actually evaluate matches between two sequences, they're not just evaluating the longest ungapped sequences. They're actually interested in the significance of a, of a sequence that can include insertions and deletions. And so BLAST has been extended to include gaps. And prior to that, long history back to the 70s is the Needleman, Winston, Smith, Waterman that I mentioned, the global and local respectively, which would allow a large number uh, of, of insertions and deletions of single bases and multiple bases as determined by the parameters that, you, that were either manually set or determined empirically. And we'll try to stress ways that this can be determined empirically. And finally, the hidden Markov models um, truly take the, the, uh, the uh, probabilistic approach to each of these, allowing position sensitive and uh, models that are extendable, not just where each position has uh, a, a set of probabilities, but there can be dependencies upon adjacent positions, and, there, uh, and we'll get to this at the very end. Now, when we talked in the very first class about different definitions of complexity, one of them we talked about was the computational complexity or hardness of, of a particular, the amount of time that it takes, the amount of space or space and time that it takes to solve a problem. And this is certainly is a good illustration uh, in today's talk in dynamic programming. Because when we want to do either a pairwise sequence alignment or multi-sequence alignment, let's start with pairwise. We're aligning k equals two sequences of length n, and we're allowing gaps. Now, if we just if we're just comparing them without gaps, uh, as we did in the earlier slides, it's trivial. It's it's linear with a total number of bases. Uh, it's linear within, and that of course scales very gracefully. But it, if you have a very naive, and I'm going to set up a straw man here, if you have a very naive algorithm, then you'll go along and you'll put in a gap at every possible position at the top in, 
in combination with every possible position in the bottom. And so that means that there's n on the top and n on the bottom for a total of two n possible positions that you could put in a gap. And the gap can be any length, as you see on the right here, slide 7, is that you can have a gap up to length n. So roughly speaking, a such a naive algorithm would scale very exponentially into the 2n power. And this is just enormous for, for n in the dozens. And when n is, is in the billions, then you can just basically forget about it. Um, we're not even talking about computers or particles in the universe anymore. Okay. So, and that's for k equals 2, the simplest possible case where you're aligning two sequences. Uh, if you're aligning multiple sequences, we'll get to that in a moment, uh, it now becomes, it definitely becomes exponential in k, even in a, a non-naive algorithm. So we're going we're to show that it's, it's going to be non-exponential in n, the length of the sequences. But in order to do that, in order to assess algorithms, um, we can do them, we can, some of them we can do theoretically, and in fact, for the, for the uh, dynamic programming, we will show that, that you can convince yourself that, that an n-squared algorithm is, is precise. But others we will have to do empirically. And I just want to take an aside here to talk about how a particular comparison of uh, sequence alignment programs was done. So the critical thing, not just for this test, but for many that you'll, that you'll be seeing in this course and you may want to do in your own projects, you want to set aside a training set in which you uh, run through a number of algorithms or a number of parameters within an algorithm to assess which ones are the best. And once you've determined the algorithms are the best or the, uh, or the parameters are the best, then you want to have a testing set that's independent. That means non-redundant as well. So, so the training set will, uh, if you use the training set as your testing set, you may lull yourself into a sense of complacency because it's been overtrained and you're basically only capable of solving the problems that you set before it. So you want a separate testing set. And uh, that was done in this case. We need uh, some sort of evaluation criteria. So we, we talked a little bit of scores that you'd set up in order to score whether one alignment is better than another alignment. But in addition, when you, when you uh, want to compare two algorithms that may give you the same score, uh, you, want, you want to uh, have a, an external evaluation criterion. Typically, the evaluation criterion that one might have is sensitivity and specificity. Occasionally, you'll find in the literature where people will just focus on one or the other. For some reason or other, they just, they, uh, they don't want to miss anything, so they want to keep their false. Po they want to reduce their false positives as much as possible, or they don't want to plow through mountains of output, and so they keep their false positives down. But you really want to have them both very low, and sometimes this is restated as, as sensitivity and specificity. Where sensitivity is the number of true um, uh, true hits that you predicted over the total number of true hits. This is, this is, say, in your training set where you know what the true hits are from some outs, outside uh, source. Um, and then specificity is the number of true hits that you predicted over all of the hits that you predicted, true and false. Now, this truth here that comes in your training set, where does that come from? Uh, if, we, if we had access to truth in general, then wh what do we need these algorithms for? And the answer is that we do have access to uh, 
maybe a higher truth or uh, something that's outside of sequence alignment. And this is crystallography, genetics, and biochemistry. Crystallography, for reasons we'll go into in the protein part of this course, um, is capable of detecting much more ancient relationships between biopolymers than is sequence alone. Similarly, genetics and biochemistry can test structural and functional hypotheses um, through great uh, expense. And so these are expensive, and the reason, so that's the reason they're great for making training sets, but they won't necessarily replace sequence uh, alignment and scores. Okay. So that was the setup for this slide, which is that Bill Pearson, uh, who actually developed uh, the FASTA algorithm, uh, among others, um, did a, a, a thorough assessment of various algorithms. FASTA was one that was based on words, meaning exact matches of some fixed lengths that the user could set. BLAST-P, which was based on these uh, maximum length blocks without gaps in it. BLITS is a, is a variation on the Smith-Waterman algorithm, meaning a full dynamic programming, which we'll be talking about in a, in a short while. This is a highly parallelized version of it early parallel version of it. So the different algorithms for doing the alignment were compared. Different substitution matrices and different databases. Just in case there was some database bias, um, he, did, he included that. And, if, uh, and so we're going to talk about substitution matrices in just a moment, but basically these are uh, what amino acid or nucleotide, uh, what amino acid in this case can substitute for another amino acid um, in, in actual proteins segments that have diverged by about the amount that you want to do your test on. Okay. And these different numbers just refer to roughly how uh, distantly related the proteins are. The, the, the higher the number, the more distantly related they are. So, uh, in the case of the PAM matrices. So now why did he do that in, with the protein level? rather than doing it to the nucleic acid level. Well, historically, it's because there, were, there weren't any nucleic acid sequences. There were mostly protein sequences. But even today, there is, uh, uh, there's obviously a lot more nucleic acid sequence. And, but there's a real reason to do it at, at the protein level, which is that when you look at the, at the code that we were we've been talking about in uh, these lectures, something like leucine, can, can be represented by six different codons, which have, can have wildly different nucleotide sequences. So, for example, CUG is valid and uh, UUA, and those only share one nucleotide out of three. And over long periods of time, if there's heavy selection on the protein and relatively weak selection on the nucleic acid, or even there could even be pressure on the nucleic acid to change for reasons that we'll go into uh, in the second half of this lecture, um, that pressure on the nucleotide sequence um, can cause the nucleotide sequence to change a lot and the protein sequence not to change much at all. Uh, so an, an example of pressure is if, one, if the tRNAs change in their abundance, then there'll be a pressure to codon usage to change. There, there are some reasons to do it at the nucleotide level. For example, if you're, if you're comparing sequences which don't encode proteins, that's an obvious reason. If you have uh, uh, a lot of insertion and deletions or, or a tricky biological phenomenon like RNA splicing, 
that causes the protein to be uh, out of phase, the inferred protein to be out of phase or hard to infer, then you would do it at the nucleotide sequence level. Okay. Now, I'm going to show this slide twice. The first time, we're going to take it as a given that we've been given this multi-sequence alignment, and we're not, going to, we're not going to question right now how we got it. But we're going to use that multi-sequence alignment to derive, or to talk about how we would derive a substitution matrix. And here, a substitution matrix, you can think this is a multi-sequence alignment. So essentially, we have a weight matrix, which if this were position sensitive, we would say, at this position, C never changes. If we do enough of these proteins, and we, just, and we don't care about position, we can build up a big set of matrices. And in general, we will find that C tends to substitute for C, and very few other things substitute for it. Eventually, you will find other substitutions. C and uh, cysteine and tryptophan, C and W, are relatively rare amino acids, and they're highly conserved. Other ones can be substituted, as you can see here. Threonine, serine, and valine can substitute for one another. So now let's take a look at how this plays out when we look at all the possible substitutions that can occur. And that's what's in slide 12. If you look along the very top row are the percentages the abundances of amino acids in a particular uh, uh, organism, say E. coli. And then in the, then the, there's a single letter code, A through Y. And along the diagonal are the, uh, is the substitution matrix, the score, which has been determined. This is the blossom matrix for a block uh, represented in distant-related blocks. Uh, here you can see that the diagonal is the, represents the tendency for the uh, amino acid to substitute for itself. And those amino acids which generally are, are not easily substituted, that is to say are highly conserved, which we pointed out in the previous slide, were cysteine C and tryptophan W. And for, for example, W is the most strongly conserved. It's 22 along the diagonal. And the consequence of that is there'll be relatively few uh, positive values off the diagonal. And in fact, for tryptophan, there are no positive values. This, this has been, uh, uh, the numbers here have been generated in such a way that, uh, that, that you'll tend, uh, that, you'll, that the negatives will tend to cancel out the positives in, align, in alignments, known alignments of sequences that are about the right evolutionary distance from one another. You want to pick, the, you want to make your matrix uh, if you're trying to look for very distant related proteins, you want to take the, mate, the substitutions that you're sampling in your training set to be uh, as far at, at that same distance. That is very distant related. And this was one of the mistakes that was made in the early uh, PAM matrix. There were two mistakes, actually. The, the mathematics of, of go, well, first, the, the, the proteins that were compared were very closely related because closely related proteins were more trustworthy. You could align close sequences more easily. The algorithms didn't be, have to be as sophisticated. And the trees could be more precise. But then because they had done, so that already was a bias because the substitutions you get in close related sequences aren't really the same. And then they applied a mathematical extrapolation method which, wasn't, which was not adequate in terms of the actual evolution and also wasn't even correct mathematically. 
Um, although this persisted for, for, uh, for decades as the most common, and still, most commonly used matrix. Uh, anyway, you can see that although tryptophan doesn't have any positive off-diagonal, something like arginine here this, in this blue uh, has a positive 4 uh, off-diagonal and, a, and a, a, a positive 10 on-diagonal. So, as you might guess, what's, what's the uh, most likely sub substituted for positively charged arginine? It's positively charged uh, lysine under physiological conditions, and that's why that's off diagonal. And there are other ones, we've color-coded these the same as the genetic code, where the, the, the negatively charged um, amino acids can also substitute for one another. Okay, so the significance of that top row of the percent abundance is that if you find two matching A's, that's not so significant because that's the most frequently occurring amino acid in this organism. Uh, on the other hand, if you find two matching uh, C's, that's very significant because those are rare. And finding two of them at the same place in a particular alignment means it's significant. So both the abundance and the substitution matrix um, can be useful. Okay, so now let's we're going to walk through actual scoring of some alignments. And so in order to, and we want to do this in this more challenging and diff, uh, situation where you allow insertions and deletions. So first, we will, uh, even though we've told how it is that we get uh, the match versus mismatch numbers uh, as a full substitution matrix, here you can imagine the substitution matrix has plus ones along its diagonal and minus ones on its off-diagonal, just so that you can do all the calculations I'm going to show you in the next few slides in your head. But, ima but also simultaneously imagine that, that it could have the richness of the substitution matrix we just had. We're going to do this the next few with nucleic acid, but imagine you could also do it with uh, amino acids. The nucleic acid substitution matrix will be a 4 by 4. The one we just saw was a 20 by 20 for amino acids. Um, the indels will have, uh, will penalize them by minus 2. But this is an arbitrary number, but, and you'll see how critical it is in just a moment. But uh, you can imagine that this could be determined empirically, just like the substitution matrix was determined empirically in the previous slide. The alignment score then will be defined as a sum of columns. We're going to be assuming that, the, that adjacent positions are independent of one another, and uh, we'll be scoring them independently and then just taking the sum. That gives us the alignment score for a particular alignment, uh, a particular set of indels and a particular set of offsets from uh, one sequence relative to another. But what we really want to do is go through all those possible alignments to get the optimal alignment, which is the maximum score defined here. To get the optimal alignment, we'd like to do that in less than exponential time, with at least ex less than exponential per n, the length of the sequences. So, so, so we're going to use this, uh, this pair of sequences, ATGA, ACTA, um, twice on this slide, and we're going to use it in subsequent slides where we do it a slightly different way. And here, and we're going to use that very simple scoring uh, metric, plus one for ma perfect match, minus one for mismatch, minus two for indel. And what we get here is... Uh, these are just two of many different alignments we could have with different insertions here, 
uh, on the left, number one, the most extreme case, no insertions or deletions on either sequence. We're only counting mismatches. There are two matches, two mismatches, and so that's two plus ones, two minus ones, and they cancel out, and the score is zero for the one on the left. Then the one on the right, we've uh, gone to the, uh, in, allowed an insertion <coughs> on each strand, uh, indicated by a dash. Uh, on, the, on the opposite uh, sequence, and now you see you have three perfect matches, which is an increase in the number of perfect matches, but it's penalized with two indels, which are both negative two, so it's plus two, minus two, minus two, for minus one. So this is not an improvement um, for the alignment on the left. If we accept the scoring uh, metrics that we had in the previous slide, you know, plus one, minus one, and minus two for the indels. If instead we say, well, indels really shouldn't be penalized that much, we can accept uh, insertions and deletions in, the, in these kind of sequences, we'll penalize by minus one, penalize the same as a mismatch. Now the score is, is uh, the three <coughs> score for the, the one on the right uh, with three perfect matches and two insertion and deletions is now plus one, and it beats uh, the uh, perfectly aligned one. So whether one is better than two depends on your the, the indel score that you chose. Yes, question. Uh, now you are aligning two different sequences, and you, in, in the case of the indel, you are allowing insertions all over the place. I mean, you could theoretically have millions of those. Right. But in, in reality, at least one of the two sequences, in most cases, would be no. You would know what it is. You can't we know both of these sequences. These are sequences that we're comparing, uh, you know, two different organisms. Right. So if you know both of them, then what's the point in allowing all these? Uh, so the question is, why are we why why are we allowing insertions and deletions? And the reason is that during evolution, say, uh, at uh, either lab evolution or uh, ancient. Uh, Insertions and deletions are valid mutations. And so we're trying to determine where the most likely places that insertions and deletions might have occurred over the course of the divergence of two sequences. And believe me, their insertions and deletions are very, very common. Um, so that's why, 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 why we permit them. Now, how we, why it is that insertions and deletions uh, might be highly penalized or low penalized might depend on a position in the sequence. So for example, uh, if you have a transcription factor where its precise geometry is, is important, or an alpha helix in a protein, uh, or the translation of a genetic code where an insertion will throw the entire frame out of uh, whack, as we had in the uh, chemokine receptor in, in last class, then, it, then you want to penalize an indel very heavily. On the other hand, if you have a bunch of motifs that are kind of uh, separated by variable linkers, then the insertion deletion could almost be zero, no penalty at all. So you can see it matters, and it might be position sensitive. It might not be one size fits all. Um, but these are empirically determined, can be empirically determined. So here's the hero, dynamic programming. We want, we've hopefully motivated that we can do scoring, we can determine in, empirically useful substitution matrices and indels, uh, now how do we apply them? And, uh, you know, dynamic programming extends beyond biology. 
uh, as I've alluded. And it's such an algorithm solves every sub-problem sub just once and saves its answer in a table, thereby avoiding the work of uh, recomputing the answer every time. So the, the, the straw man that I threw up before of having this exponential problem is very readily solved. And the way it's solved is this is the sub-problem way of dealing with it. And the idea of recursion, which we lightly touched upon when we defined a factorial as n factorial as, as uh, equal to n times n minus 1 factorial. So defining it in terms of itself. But the key thing behind that definition and the ones we'll have here is that when you define something in terms of itself, you better have the call uh, be a simpler problem and eventually terminate. And so that's what we have here is I'm going to give two examples in, in slide 17 and, then, and in the next slide. Uh, one of them global and one of them local. This one will be done in terms of a tetranucleotide comparison, the same one we've been dealing with all along. And the other one will be in a more abstract sequence. Uh, this here, the, the way we have to do this sub-sub problem by recursion is we say we define the score of uh, aligning these two tetranucleotides as the maximum of, and then there are three options. It can be either the score of re reducing, uh, of having an, ins an insertion on the top strand, uh, and that's the top option. The middle one is having no insertions or deletions on either strand, and just evaluating the last uh, base comparison which in this case is an A versus an A. Now that in a, is the way that the algorithm terminates. When you have a single base comparison or a single base compared to, to an indel, then you uh, look up the scoring algorithm, that we've been, the scoring metric we've been using all along. So here, let's look at that, that final uh, right-hand column. The, the score for an indel versus an A would be that minus two that we've been assuming along. And the score of an A versus A would be the substitution matrix diagonal, which would be a plus one, and, a, and then here a minus two. And so you can see that that the, you're calling up these three possibilities: indel, no uh, on the t insertion on the top, no insertion, insertion on the bottom, and you take the maximum of these, whichever one of these gives the best score. Now that requ requires going back and calling it again, but you're calling it with a simpler. Uh, you're asking for a simpler one. So, you'll, so now you'll take the max of ATG versus ACT, and that'll uh, ask you to look up the max of AT versus AC, and finally you'll get the max of A versus A, and then you end. Uh, yeah? Are you assuming that insertion side is always zero, uh, one? The insertion side is always one, right? Uh, no. This algorithm allows any number of insertions up to the length of the a sequence, and you'll see it when we do this in tabular form, however possibility. But but you do one at a time. There are only three cases here. By dealing with just three cases at a time, you actually end up having the full generality of, of any number of insertions and deletions. And that's the beauty of this algorithm. You don't have to explicitly do every possible insertion with every possible um, deletion. You just have to run them through, through once. Okay. Now, I said that I was going to do two treatments of very certain, certain similarities. These are both dynamic programming of pairwise sequences. The previous one was global. This one is local. The only difference now 
is that we res- restrain the, uh, the score to be greater than zero. We don't permit negatives. So that means we're not penalizing the mismatches, for example, at the ends. Remember when I showed you that specific example earlier on. So now we have four choices, the same three as before, plus, uh, plus zero. And the other thing that I made a little different here is rather than having a specific sequence, that tetranucleotide, here we have a general sequence where you show that the ellipses, uh, you know, you go, the sequence is up to I long and up to J long here. And uh, at this stage in the scoring, you're, you're, you're uh, going to either lop off the, the I, I and J uh, sequence element. This would be a single base. And you do that score in the central uh, scoring here. Or you have an, uh, an insertion at the top or insertion at the bottom. So it's very, this is a, uh, just a restatement of the previous one, generalized um, and made into a local alignment, which in general is, is what people do. People do uh, local alignments rather global ones because it's unsafe to say that the ends of your sequence will align. But we'll go through, we'll work through both of these as examples. Now, uh, we're going to compute this as a row-by-row algorithm. Now, casually, you could just, you could leave off this this frame along the edge, okay? But in order to make the algorithm uh, be the same for the beginning and all the intermediate steps, what you do is you pre-fill this with, uh, with numbers such that uh, the edges are some very, very small number, uh, which is smaller than the sum of all the scores that you could get out of this table, so that you can't really uh, come in from those edges. You have to come in um, from this zero point, which is the, the, uh, the global alignment requires the ends to align. So this is requiring the left-hand ends to align. And so then the, the first... Uh, comparison, the only comparison you can really do is the AA. That's the terminal comparison. And that happens to be a perfect match, so it gets a score of plus one. Now, the next square that you can do is minus one. And remember, so each of these is, has three possibilities in the global alignment. Remember, the th- it can be an assertion, a deletion, um, or um, just, a compa- just a direct comparison of match versus mismatch. So this first one, the insertion and deletions were ruled out. They weren't going to win the maximum score, um, so you got so you basically got one. It gets a little more interesting when you go to uh, to this adding this next C. In order to add this C on this on the horizontal axis without adding anything on the vertical axis, that means that you've got an indel, and that means that you've you've got your AA match. But now to add this C, you've got a neg- negative two, a penalty of minus two. Um, and so for the net result is a minus one. And then for each subsequent one, you've now, uh, the, it's assumed that the, the extension is the same as, as the initial in, indel, which is all negative two. And so this is a, uh, an AA match followed by uh, one insertion, two insertions, or three insertions. And three insertions, of course, that gives you minus five. And you just keep walking through this. Uh, each one of these squares has, has essentially is the maximum of three possibilities. Uh, the diagonal, if you, if you follow the little yellow uh, diagonal 
line from the one to the zero, that means you've now got, you've taken an AA match and a CT mismatch and the, and the negative one is canceled out the positive one and you get a zero. Alternatively, that, that zero is actually the maximum of that individual score uh, compared to an indel from a minus one, uh, a, yeah, a minus one plus uh, um, this mismatch, which is not going to be better than zero, and a minus one plus uh, the mismatch coming in horizontally, which is also not going to be better than zero. So you end up with zero, which is the perfect match plus a mismatch, no indels. Uh, if you, uh, and similarly, uh, you can fill up the entire table this way. Uh, finally, now you want to, you can trace wh what, what the best scores are going from end to end. Um, here, going all the way from your AA terminal match at the left end to the AA terminal match at the right end. And you can see a, a, the best uh, traceback route is uh, going through the diagonal. Here, um, this zero is the maximum of three possibilities, left, right, uh, up, down, and diagonal. Similarly, this minus one was the best of, uh, of three possibilities. Remember, this is a global alignment that allows negative values. Um, and it, it, it came, its maximum was along the diagonal and so forth. Um, that's an example of the two, you know, the two basic steps. You have you set up the scoring metrics, you set up this uh, n by n or n by m matrix, and then you just fill it up. And that's an n squared operation. It just goes up with the number of uh, the length of the two sequences. And, question? It's not. That's true. Uh, that's right. If you have an off-diagonal uh, that's equivalent, then, then, then that's a, another valid sequence alignment. And that's actually com it comes up quite commonly both in global and local alignments. Right. Okay. And then in the, in the lower uh, right-hand corner of slide 20 shows the specific interpretation of this brown set of errors, the particular traceback that we chose to, uh, to highlight here, which is not the only one, uh, that's, and, and that, that's interpreted in, the, in this, the same way we interpreted the uh, symbolically in an earlier slide. Now, uh, this is also from a much earlier slide. Uh, this is the one where we had uh, the motif to illustrate the local alignment. And on the left-hand side matrix is for a local alignment using the smith Otterman algorithm. And on the right-hand side is the global alignment using the Needleman-Winch type algorithm, which we just used on a shorter sequence. And here, um, we've, we've uh, emphasized that the, the diagonal, which... Uh, uh, gives a score of two and has a traceback along the magenta diagonal, uh, and would have the interpretation of of, a, of the top sequence directly over the the bottom sequence. On the other hand, if we look for local alignments and we do not penalize the offsets or the indels, 
then you can get an example. Here's another uh, magenta traceback um, where we've gone the AA uh, match um, is not <coughs> on the diagonal for the global sequence alignment, but it hasn't been penalized so that so that it picks up the zeros from the from the frame uh, boundary cells and uh, just picks up the positive one, perfect match. And then when you add a C, it picks up another one, and another C, another A, and all four add up uh, to four. Adding an additional base, however, does not uh, help because it has to be a mismatch or uh, an insertion or deletion. So you're going from the four to an indel causes it to drop by minus two, giving the two twos, uh, and going along the diagonal picks up a mismatch, which is a minus one penalty. So you just can't do better. And so that determines the edges of your local alignment. So you not only have a score and a trace back, but you also have the endpoints. Okay. Yes, question. You. Yeah. Um, now, you just kept going, though, uh, on the, not exactly diagonal, but uh, in diagonal section from four. Yes, you'll get a longer. Three, which is obviously not, not good. And then, then four. If you keep going, you, that's add, right. you get back to four. And that's, that's another example, just like the previous one. That's a, another valid alignment. Uh, it's It's a... It's a lo it's still a local alignment. It's not it's not it doesn't have the, the total global uh endpoints um and it has an equal score to the shorter motif. So how do you use this effect? I mean would you say They're equal. because the other one is a longer well, maybe more did, the, in this case the scoring algorithm was set up in such a way that length didn't factor into it other than the fact that Longer sequences have more chances to have more perfect matches. So, so in this case, they would be equivalent. Um, as you get as you get to uh, more detailed substitution matrices, uh, the chances of getting two identical scores are are weaker. But with nucleic acids, with this kind of simple scoring, it comes up all the time. Okay, so that's. That's fine. We've now uh, bargained our way down from uh, a horrible exponential uh, potential way of doing alignments to something which scales um, by n times m, uh, where, where those are the lengths of the two sequences. Uh, you can think of this as a rectangular uh, matrix, such as the ones we've been doing. And both the, the time and the space or memory requirements for the algorithm will scale by this um, quadratic uh, relationship. And the amount of time and memory um, is modest. For, so, this, so in absolute terms, it would be on the order of one comparison. That's that maximum comparison, um, uh, uh, three multiplication steps, and in computing the entry. And the, and the memory could be on the order of a byte. Uh, data structure could be integer or it could be floating point. And uh, again, you have to have some way of finding the entries in the table. Okay, so that's fine. It scales gracefully, but how big is it? Let's say we had two megabase genomes. Um, in order to, to find entries of that size, you might want to set aside four bytes. And so you have... Uh, the four bytes times uh, 10 to the 6 squared, 
Or on the, this is just ballpark. There are various ways you could squeeze this a bit, but this is uh, four gigabytes of memory. And uh, for a gigahertz CPU, this might be, uh, you might be able to do a million entries per second, so that uh, with 10 to the 6 squared entries, that's about 10 days. Now, that's a fairly small genome. Uh, most genomes are bigger than one megabase. And so when we had the discussions at the beginning of the genome project, and uh, one of the things the computer people brought up was how are we going to compare uh, 10... Uh, a, a billion base pairs with a billion base pairs if the goal of this project is to do the three billion base pair human genome. And of course back then most computers were uh, uh, four gigabytes and uh, gigahertz was a quite, quite remarkable computer. And, uh, and of course the answer was that we weren't going to do a full dynamic programming of the human genome against itself. We were going to cheat in various ways. Uh, and, it, and it took uh, the recognition that it really was practical and biologically not much of a shortcut to look for uh, little anchor points that would tell you that maybe the sequences don't align end to end, but there's some anchor point which had, where you have enough bases or enough amino acids in a row that you can say, okay, here's one point where they definitely align. Let's now make reasonable assumptions by how many indels they can, there can be. Um, uh, for example, by, by knowing how different the two sequences are. And so if you know that the, the differences of sequences, then, then you can have, you can say, I'm not going to allow more than, than a reasonable number of indels based on how different the sequences are. And you make a band, which is a narrow width. Here's a fairly extreme example where we have a width of three. And so rather than doing a full n-squared uh, matrix where you filled up the entire thing, which is, uh, we just do an, uh, a, this band, which is on the order of the width of the band times the length of uh, the longest sequence. Now, uh, this doesn't look very impressive for this case because n is small and w is relatively large. But, but if n were billions and w were, say, you know, three to five, then it would be a very significant savings. So there's two key things here. One is the, the, the banding, and the other is getting the anchor points. So summary for this half of the talk is that we have uh, dynamic programming is, is really the rigorous way to compare two sequences. After the break, we'll see how you can compare multiple sequences. Uh, we need to work towards a statistical interpretation of these alignments. That's going to require uh, some test sets, uh, sorry, some training sets, so we, where you can see how it actually behaves on, uh, on real uh, uh, biological populations of sequence alignments. Um, we need to uh, compute either a global or a local alignment. You've seen algorithms for doing each of those and how there, there's a important but subtle differences between them. And we've talked about ways that we can improve the uh, algorithm tremendously uh, and uh, uh, using the scoring, simple scoring functions or complicated ones that are determined empirically. So let's take a little break and we'll come back and talk about multi-sequence alignment. <laughs>